So I'd first like to introduce the chair of the Dauphin County Democratic Committee, Ms. Rogette Harris, who she will be introducing Dr. Carol Anderson. A few words about Rogette. She is the youngest woman and first African-American to be elected chair of the Dauphin County Democratic Committee. And in 1909, yes, yes. <laughs> She's been at it for a while, but in this past year, she was unanimously re-elected chair, and she is currently the only African-American county chair in the state of Pennsylvania. So we have something to be proud of right here in Dauphin County. Bridgette has over a decade's worth of experience writing policy and almost 20 years' experience with strategic communications and government relations. And in 2017, she started her own business, Harris Strategic Communications. Educationally, Bridgette has a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Pittsburgh and dual master's degrees in public administration and business administration, which she completed in Washington, D.C. And as a freelance writer, she's a community columnist for the Patriot News. Many of you may have read some of her essays, also Soul Town Magazine. And her honors include being selected as a woman of excellence by the Greater Harrisburg YWCA and is being selected as one of the 40 under 40 stars in the region by the Central Pennsylvania Business Journal. Would you all please welcome to the stage Ms. Rajat Harris. Good evening, everyone. I would first like to thank uh, Mayor Papenfuse for that nice introduction. Now tonight, I have the honor to introduce New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Carol Anderson. Dr. Anderson is an educator, historian, and an author. In her New York Times bestseller, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide, Dr. Anderson outlines a history of policies that spans from 1865 to present day that has systematically hindered progress for African Americans. With one person, no vote, how voter suppression is destroying our democracy, she gives us a glimpse into the history of voter suppression. Dr. Anderson chronicles a related history, the rollbacks to African American participation to suppress the vote since the 2013 Supreme Court decision that gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Dr. Anderson highlights both the past and the grip race holds on the present. As an educator and historian, Professor Anderson has been praised, both by colleagues and students alike, for her exciting, nuanced, and accessible approach to research and academia. She has received numerous teaching awards, including Emroy's Williams Award and the University's Teacher Scholar Award. At the core of her research agenda is how policy is made and the unmade, how racial inequality and racism affect that process and outcome, and how those who have taken the brunt of those laws, executive orders, and directives have worked to shape, counter, undermine, reframe, and when necessary, dismantle the legal and political structure used to limit the rights and humanity. Professor Anderson understood early on that policymakers and activists were at work shaping our world. Since then, she has set out to find out how and why. Dr. Carol Anderson is a professor of African American Studies at Elmroy University. 
Her role as a public scholar has found her serving on working groups dealing with race, minority rights, and criminal justice at Stanford Center for Applied Science and Behavioral Studies, the Aspen Institute, and the United Nations, and as a member of the U.S. State Department's Historical Advisory Committee. She is currently on the advisory board of the National Economic and Social Rights Initiative. She has appeared on The Rachel Maddow Show, PBS NewsHour, and Democracy Now!, as well as providing commentary for the Huffington Post, The Guardian, New York Times, and The Washington Post. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Dr. Carol Anderson. coming to the talk. <laughs> Today, I w first I want to thank Midtown Books, I want to thank Harrisburg, and I want to thank you. This is, this is absolutely wonderful. Um, and now I'm getting ready to talk about something not so wonderful. I'm going to talk about voter suppression. And I'm first I'm going to talk about it in the ways that we normally think of voter suppression and suppressing the vote for African Americans. And so I'm going to start with a tale about a man named Maceo, Maceo Snipes. It was 1946. Maceo Snipes had come home from the war. He had fought fascist. And he had fought for America. He had fought for democracy. And Maceo knew in that fight that he was an American citizen. And he was going to do what American citizens do. He was going to vote. He was going to vote in Georgia in 1946. Now, in that election in 1946, there was a man running. His name was Eugene Talmadge. And Gene, Gene was running on the standard of you keep the ends where they belong. That was his platform. And he sent the word out to his followers that if we explain it to them just right, I know they're not going to want to vote. But Maceo's like, I fought Nazis. <laughs> What's Georgia got? So Maceo went to go vote in Taylor County, Georgia. And there was a sign above that said, the first Negro that votes, that'll be the last thing he ever does. Maceo looked at that sign and was like, and went and cast his ballot. Because he was an American citizen. He was a veteran. And then there was silence. And he thought, eh, eh. A few days later, <laughs> comes to his door. He steps out. And they said, could you step outside? And he opens the door, and he steps out on the porch. And he hears, choo -choo, and it was a firing squad. And they laid Maceo 
it and walked away. Maceo's mother ran out the house when she saw her baby lying there on the porch, riddled with bullets, just bleeding. And she picked her baby up and she dragged him to the hospital. But in 1946, Georgia, black people don't have the right to health care. And so in that Jim Crow hospital, they looked at Maceo, this veteran who had fought the fascists, and that's not what they saw. And so they put him in the room about the size of a closet. And nobody came to see him for six hours while he's riddled with bullets. It took Maceo two days to die. Of course, no one was ever charged. That vision of the violence that African Americans faced for daring to be American citizens, for daring to vote, is how we often think of disfranchisement. But there's another kind of violence that is just laid out on African Americans and other people for daring to believe they are American citizens and for daring to vote. And that is, are those policies of disfranchisement, those policies of suppression that do violence not only to the African American community, but to American democracy as well. And so that's what I want to lay out for you today. The question that so many politicians have coming out of the Civil War, and particularly when we get into the rise of Jim Crow, is mm, how do we get around that pesky little thing called the 15th Amendment? That 15th Amendment that says, you have the right to vote shall not be abridged on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. How do you write a law that says we don't want black people to vote? without writing a law saying, we don't want black people to vote. Can you guess who was the first one to figure it out? Huh? Talmadge? You would have thought it would have been Talmadge. Talmadge wasn't the first one to figure it out. Which state was the first one to figure it out? Mississippi. <laughs> yes, it was Mississippi. Or as we used to say, am I a crooked letter, crooked letter, I. Mississippi figured it out. In 1890, it was the Mississippi Plan of 1890. And what they figured out was what you do is you go after the societally imposed characteristics on a people and then make those societally imposed characteristics the litmus test to the access to the ballot box. That way... You, you can say, you don't have to say, we don't want black people to vote. And what do I mean by societally imposed? So what Mississippi came up with, for instance, was the literacy test. Because one of the things was to make all of this sound reasonable. Because it requires a level of reasonableness in order to be able to sail through. And what reasonable was, was... Uh, you know, we've, got some, we've had some corruption at the ballot box. Voter fraud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Mark Twain, they, they say he said, history may not repeat itself, but it sure do rhyme. 
And so, and so we've got to clean up this corruption at the ballot box. And so one of the things is that we believe that people who are voting should understand what the laws are, should understand the foundational principles of our society. So all they have to do is just read a section of the Constitution, either the state Constitution or the U.S. Constitution. And that might sound reasonable if you have a really good education system. The black folks did not have a really good education system. The South had systematically and systemically underfunded black schools. By the time we would get into the 1940s, the average um, was a 252% differential. 252% difference in the funding of white schools to black schools. In Mississippi, it was 751%. Begin to think about what that looks like and where a major portion of that differential came was that many black schools did not have high schools. Many black schools stopped like at the sixth grade or so. So you take that kind of education system and then you put, read a passage of the Constitution and interpret it to the liking of the registrar. And the registrar's decision is non-appealable. Mm. It didn't say we don't want black people to vote. It just said we don't want people who are illiterate to vote. And then you systematically underfund black schools. Then there was the poll tax. The poll tax, again, sounded reasonable. Democracy is expensive. You know, and you have all of these elections, and you gotta have a place where the votes are being cast. You gotta have people there to take the ballots. You gotta have people there to count the ballots. Democracy is expensive. And so if people are really vested in democracy, they're gonna pay a piece of a tax, just a small tax, to show their investment in that democracy. Now, all of that sounds good if we're not dealing with hundreds of years of slavery and the kind of poverty that is generated by centuries of slavery moving out of the Civil War, then we get no 40 acres as the kind of economic foundation to deal with the lack of an economic foundation, and then we deal with sharecropping. Poverty, if you make societally imposed poverty the litmus test. And the way that the poll tax worked is that you weren't quite sure when to pay it or where to pay it because it would be on the years divisible by seven but not by nine, but also divisible by two but not by six. On the fourth day of the fifth month, except in those years that are also divisible by seven but not by three. And the poll tax was cumulative. So when you turn 21, you were supposed to start paying your poll tax. 
if you couldn't figure out the year, the month, the day, and the place where you were supposed to pay it, or you didn't have the money, and it took you about 20 years to figure that out, you owe 20 years of back poll taxes before you could pay. So let me give you a, an example of what this means. In Mississippi, the average family income, farm family income, which was most of the state, was $100 a year. We were requiring at least 2% of the family's annual income for one person to be able to vote. The combination of the literacy test and the poll tax alone meant by 1940 only 3% of African-American adults were registered to vote in the South. So by the time the U.S. is getting ready to fight Nazis, 3% in the South, where most African-Americans lived. And both the poll tax and the literacy test have been blessed on high from the U.S. Supreme Court as not violating the 15th Amendment. But you see how you don't say, we don't want black people to vote. But if you structure the law just right, you can pass the Supreme Court and end up with 97% of African-Americans, adults in the South, not being able to vote. So by the time the U.S. defeats the Nazis, and remember, this was the war against Aryan supremacy. Defeating the Nazis didn't fix this problem of disfranchisement at all. Neither did the 1957 Civil Rights Act. Now, what that Civil Rights Act was about is because by 1954-55, you've got the onset of the Civil Rights Movement. You've had the Brown decision, you've had the Montgomery bus boycott going on, and boom, you have Little Rock blowing up. Not just in Arkansas, but internationally. As these images of children, nine black children, just trying to get an education and watching the violence of the mob, and that's a mob. Yes, I love that. Amen. And the violence of the National Guard. That image is coming out while the U.S. is doing its Cold War thing. We are the leader of the free world. And it's so hard to be the Jim Crow leader of the free world. Because one of these things is not like the other. And so the Eisenhower administration is like, what are we going to do? And so what they came up with was the 1957 Civil Rights Act. And that was the act that was going to start dealing with issues of disfranchisement by allowing people to actually sue when their rights to vote had been violated. It sounded almost great on paper. But there was a little bit of problem. Problem. You are black in Mississippi. You're getting ready to sue a white Mississippian who's got power for violating your voting rights. And there has to be an investigation while you are black in Mississippi sitting there 
during the investigation. Then there's a trial. Then there's the verdict. Then there's the appeal. Then there's the verdict for the appeal. Years have gone by during this litigation of this one case of voting rights violation. And many times the person who was being sued, the registrar, toward the end of the case would then leave that office. And by that person leaving the office, the case would become moot and you'd have to start all over again. The 1957 Civil Rights Act didn't deal with massive disfranchisement. But remember, we've got the movement that is going. And it is about black people fighting for their citizenship rights using the weapons of nonviolent protest. And we see this kind of epic, epic moment on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. And we have John Lewis and Hosea Williams at the front of these nonviolent marchers who are symbolically carrying the body of Jimmy Lee Jackson to put his body on the doorstep of Governor George Wallace. Jimmy Lee had been killed by law enforcement for protecting his mother from a beating during a, non, uh, a voting rights pr um, protest. There's that moment. The marchers are here. In front of them are the Alabama State Patrol. And in front of them are Sheriff Jim, Clark's, Jim Clark and his deputies. And they're on horseback with bull whips wrapped in barbed wire. As the nonviolent protesters move forward, law enforcement hits with a vengeance. You see the tapes of the whips cracking. You see the horses trampling over the nonviolent protesters. You see the tear gas. And the cameras are rolling. It's called Bloody Sunday. And in Bloody Sunday, it was so horrific that ABC, in its movie of the week, cut into its movie of the week, Judgment at Nuremberg, to show the carnage that was happening in Selma, Alabama, as American citizens were fighting for the right to vote in 1965. That carnage shocked America. They were like, what just happened here? That was followed by the bludgeoning death of Reverend James Reeb in Selma, a white man who had come down for the next wave of the marchers, believing that black people had the right to vote. And he was separated from his life, cracked in the head for having that belief. Bloody Sunday, Reverend James Reeb gives us the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That was an incredible piece of legislation because what it did was it flipped, it flipped the previous process on its head. The previous process required a voting rights violation to happen, the individual to then sue. While that voting rights violation continues to be in operation, electing one disfranchising politician after the next. This time with the Voting Rights Act, 
it required states that had a history of discriminating against its citizens. And the way that that was defined is fewer than 50% of your adults, age-eligible adults are registered to vote, and you're using one of these devices, a literacy test, a poll tax. If that's the case, you cannot come under what they call preclearance. Preclearance is where any change that one of these places wants to make to its voting laws has to be approved by the U.S. Department of Justice or by the federal courts in Washington, D.C. Ooh, now, I have to say the South didn't quite like it. And they sued, and they sued, and they sued, and they lost, and they lost, and they lost. The Voting Rights Act was so powerful that in early 1960, the percentage of African Americans registered to vote in Mississippi was in the single digits. By 1967-68, it was almost 60%. In 1967, Mississippi elected its first black politician since Reconstruction. The Voting Rights Act worked. It worked. Now, it had a couple of glitches, but it worked. In fact, it worked too well because folks remained not happy. So by the time we get to the 2000 election, and we remember the 2000 election, Bush Gore, hanging chads, Florida, <laughs> an inability to count, <laughs> an inability to recount. But there was something else happening in that 2000 election that has shaped where we are today. And that is what happened in St. Louis, Missouri. In St. Louis, Missouri, the St. Louis Board of Elections illegally purged nearly 50,000 voters off of the list shortly before the election and didn't tell them. So people go to vote and their names aren't on the list. They can't vote. And they're like, <laughs> I voted last time. <laughs> I voted here last time. They're like, well, you're not on the list. And, and so as the poll workers are trying to call down to the Board of Elections to figure out what's going on, what's going on, they can't get through. The lines are jammed. So they start sending people down to the board. Remember, 50,000 people purged, and they just start sending them downtown to the board. And this is on a Tuesday, a work day. The Board of Elections records are, a, I think the scholarly term is hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> and the Board of Elections can't figure out what's quite going on. And hours and hours and hours and the board is jammed. The polls are getting ready to close at 7 p.m. And the board of elections is still packed with people. So the Democrats sued and said, this is not their fault. 
We have American citizens who have the right to vote and their right has been abridged. They have been illegally purged off of the rolls and they have spent all day trying to get back on the rolls so that they can vote. And the judge agreed. The Republicans came in immediately thereafter to get a, a, court, a higher court ruling that said, uh-uh, shut the polls down now. So by 7.45, the polls closed. Now, the rationale that the Republicans used was that keeping the polls open an additional three hours was a case of massive, rampant voter fraud. Because what St. Louis was trying to do, they had all of these people, they had dogs on the voting rolls trying to vote, they had dead people on the rolls trying to vote, they had all of these people using addresses from all of these vacant lots just voting over and over and over. They're trying to steal an election. Voter fraud. Voter fraud. Voter fraud. Anybody here ever heard that word, voter fraud? <laughs> and one of the key proponents of this line about voter fraud was U.S. Senator Kit Bond. And Kit Bond then took that language of voter fraud into the U.S. Congress, where Congress was working on the Help America Vote Act. What that bill was supposed to do was to deal with all of that mess in Florida. Like, we're going to get some machines that can actually count votes. Uh, shocking. We're, we're going to have a place where people will have had their rights violated, where they can go and lodge a complaint. Because where they were supposed to do that prior to was not clear. So folks were just going to the NAACP. So on one hand, you have this bill that is to deal with the ills in American democracy, the very real things that happened in the 2000 election. Kit Bond insisted upon inserting voter fraud, the lie of voter fraud, into fe a federal law saying in order to protect against voter fraud, we must have voter ID. So we now have voter ID embedded in federal law as if what happened in St. Louis is the equivalent to what happened in Florida. In 2006, Indiana authored the first voter ID law. That case When it went up to the Supreme Court, the NAACP and the ACLU said, you know, Indiana cannot point to one instance of voter fraud, voter impersonation fraud, in the history of Indiana. Not just in this decade. Not just since, oh, I don't know, Civil War, ever. Voter fraud does not exist. When the law that Indiana passed came through, 
they never were able to identify a case of voter fraud. The U.S. Supreme Court, Justice John Paul Stevens said, yes, it's true that the only kind of fraud that this bill will stop is voter impersonation fraud at the polls. And it is true that Indiana has not been able to provide any documentation that this has ever happened in the history of Indiana. I'm thinking, okay, we're done here. But no. Then Justice Stevens said, but you know fraud has happened in the past. Like in 1868, in New York City, William Boss Tweed, And so to make the equivalent of a machine in 1868, voter impersonation fraud, and then he did that swan dive into St. Louis with the dead dogs, no, with the dogs and the dead people, <laughs> and all of those vacant lots. Now, all of that had been debunked by the time that this case came through. All of it had been proven a lie. It didn't matter. The U.S. Supreme Court said that the voter ID law was constitutional and did not violate the 15th Amendment, although the NAACP and ACLU had ample evidence that the ways that the law was written, it was going to go after poor people and black people without saying we're going after poor people and black people. But then there was 2008. There was an election in 2008. It seems so long ago. <laughs> in that election, Barack Obama became president of the United States. <laughs> I no longer have a poker face, so. <laughs> and so, and one of the things that we hear is like, how racist can America be? We elected a black man twice to the White House. How many people have heard that? <laughs> and what that means is how racist can America be because we white Americans elected a black man to the White House. That's what that really means. Except not quite true. Because the majority of whites did not vote for Barack Obama. <laughs> In fact, the majority of whites have not voted for a Democratic candidate for president since 1964, when the federal government said it was going to put its full weight and authority behind backing the citizenship rights of African Americans. So what you had was a sizable number of whites who voted for Barack Obama, not the majority, but Obama had a ground game, a grassroots ground game. Yeah, yeah. And that brought 15 million new voters to the polls who were overwhelmingly black, Latino, Asian, young, and poor. Poor, making less than $15,000 a year. Remember that group, because that will be the target for voter suppression in the era we're in right now. 
Republicans looked at that and went, oh. <laughs> I mean, they had a Scooby-Doo moment. Oh, <laughs> 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 Shaggy. <laughs> I, I think there's some voters out here we're never going to get. <laughs> that was wrong of me. I'm sorry. <laughs> As they're working and devising ways to try to stop this coalition, because once this coalition starts moving, starts voting, when this coalition sees that it has a stake in the United States of America, in this democracy, whoo, whoo, how do we get them to not feel vested? How do we demoralize them? How do we block them from voting? Well, the Supreme Court was going to help with that. In 2013, in the Shelby County v. Holder decision, what happened in Shelby County in Alabama was that the county commissioners had begun to annex land around Calera City. They had annexed it so much that they started redrawing the district boundaries. Now, there was one lone black councilman in, in Calera City. By the time they redrew his district, 70% of his voters had voted against Barack Obama. In that next election, he was not reelected. But Alabama's a pre-clearance state. Any of those changes that they were making in terms of drawing districts was going to have to be okayed by the U.S. Department of Justice, and Shelby County didn't feel the need to do so. That case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Chief Justice John Roberts and four other justices in a 5-4 decision wrote that racism really isn't operating the way that it had been in the United States in the past. It's just not a prevalent force anymore. And so those kinds of racist conditions that gave rise to the Voting Rights Act are no longer necessary. I don't know where John Roberts lives, <laughs> but I'd like to go there. Because what he ignored is that in the 2006 reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, it showed that the Department of Justice had blocked over 700 attempted changes to the voting laws because those laws were racially discriminatory and would have a disparate impact on minority voters. He wrote that the Voting Rights Act was calcified, that many of the districts that were had come under preclearance in 1965 were still there. So clearly the law wasn't working. Now, I look at that going, all in order to be bailed out, all you have to do is not discriminate against your people for five years. You couldn't pull that off since 1965. So, of course, you weren't getting bailed out. Only 17 jurisdictions had been bailed out. And he said that it unduly picked on the South. 
instead of going, what did they do to make themselves so pickable? But what he also didn't pay attention to is that there were bail-in provisions in the Voting Rights Act. And so there were areas in California, Alaska, Arizona, um, New York, that had been bailed in under the provisions of the Voting Rights Act because they were discriminating. This wasn't some stagnant, calcified law. But in this land where racism is no longer prevalent, as he looked as we've elected black people, We've elected Latinos. Black voter turnout is high. Clearly, racism is no longer an issue. They gutted Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, which was the standard that decided who had to come under preclearance. Once that section had been gutted, preclearance was no longer available. With Shelby County v. Holder, it was almost, what was that, that song? Who let the dogs out? Boom. Because boom, these states hit hard. Two hours after Shelby County v. Holder, Texas implemented its voter ID law. Two hours. What Texas's voter ID law did was it said, we've got all of this massive, rampant, yes, yes. And so therefore, in order to protect the integrity of the ballot box, all we're requiring is that you show an ID to prove you are who you really say you are when you're casting a ballot, a vote. Except the way that they defined what a valid ID was had serious implications. For instance, you had to have a government-issued photo ID but your student ID from like the University of Texas, a state-financed university, did not count. But your gun registration card did. In one-third of the counties in Texas, there is not a Department of Motor Vehicles, which affects over a million people. The legislators knew that people were going to have to make a 250-mile round trip in order to get a driver's license from the nearest bureau. 250 miles. But if you don't drive, because you don't have a driver's license, how do you get 250 miles? And in the original legislation, they had where the state would reimburse residents who had to make that round trip. Before the law was passed, they drew a red line through the reimbursement. That's a poll tax. Or let's take Alabama. Alabama actually passed its law in 2011, two years before Shelby County v. Holder. But they knew the law was so racist that it would never get to the Department of Justice preclearance. What do I mean by racist? The Republicans actually recorded themselves saying this. How do we depress the black voter turnout? Because you know you're going to have all of these illiterates and these aborigines getting on these HUD finance buses and going to the polls. What are we going to do? Yes. And they drafted the voter ID law. 
as they drafted this voter ID law, it, be it, became, it came, became operational after Shelby County v. Holder. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund noted that somehow public housing ID was not on this list of government-issued photo ID to be able to vote. Now, Alabama's a poor state. It's got lots of poor folks, and it's got lots of poor folks in public housing, 71% of whom are African-American. The state of Alabama said, public housing ID is not an acceptable form of government-issued photo ID. But I'm thinking it doesn't get more government-issued than public housing. But you know, you can get a driver's license. Now, driver's licenses are also racially disparate, although it doesn't seem so on the surface. But cars are expensive. You got the note, you got insurance, you got maintenance, you got gas, and if you're in a city, you got parking. When we have the kinds of disparities that we have in wealth and income in the United States, this is how you write to the 15th Amendment while writing around it. You've got this disparity. So now folks are going like, man, I gotta get a driver's license. Governor Bentley, listening to his mistress, I'm like, that is some really interesting pillow talk. <laughs> Shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties. So now the nearest Department of Motor Vehicles was 50 miles away. Again, if you don't have a driver's license, and Alabama's ranked 48th in the nation in terms of public transportation. So you don't have public transportation. But one of the things, but the voter ID sounds reasonable. Remember that reasonable is always necessary. You need an ID to check out a library book. Everybody's got ID and we don't understand the way that class and race work into, into that level of reasonableness. Everybody does not have an ID. In fact, 25% of African Americans in the United States, African American adults, do not have a government issued photo ID. And then there was Indiana, home of Mike Pence. In Indiana's voter ID law, that disparity was obvious, but they said, hey, Indiana said, hey, we'll, we'll give you a free ID. You just need to have the documents. Well, in many people did not have a birth certificate. If you're poor, you're, you probably weren't born in a hospital, so you don't have a birth certificate. In order to get a driver's license, though, you needed a birth certificate. But in order to get a birth certificate, you had to have a driver's license. Let me say that again. <laughs> in order to get a driver's license, you needed a birth certificate. In order to get the birth certificate, we got a chicken egg thing happening here. <laughs> you needed to, and it was designed again to stymie. But we don't see the underlying substructures there. The same way we didn't see, the Supreme Court didn't see the massive disparity in funding for black schools, for literacy tests. 
The other thing that these states have done after Shelby County v. Holder deals with early voting. What early voting does is early voting deals with the fact that you've got working class folks, people who punch the clock and cannot get off on a Tuesday to vote. I live in Atlanta. Atlanta of the traffic. I teach at Emory. Emory is here in Atlanta. There is a sizable black community here in southwest Atlanta. Emory is one of the largest employers in the state. So to be able to get from here to here, the polls open at 7. You have to be at work at 8. You can't get from here to here by stopping off at the polls trying to vote. You certainly can't make it from here to here to vote during your lunch hour and get back in time. And then trying to get through the traffic in the evening, it's not going to happen. That's what voting on Tuesday does. So early voting expands the opportunities for American citizens to have their right to vote. These state legislatures went through and started finding, getting the data, like North Carolina. When do black folks vote? They, in fact, asked for voting data by race and then wrote their voting laws based on that data. So they found that African Americans tended to vote early in that first week, that they had a massive bump of African American voters that first week. So they just canceled that first week. Then they also found that African Americans also tend to vote, again, at high levels on the Sunday before that Tuesday. Souls to the polls. So when the churches would close, folks would get in the bus and then go to the polls. So they canceled that Sunday before as well. Then what they did, because that wasn't enough, is that they also began to limit the number of polling sites. So in Mecklenburg County, where Charlotte is, 750,000 people, 15% of the state's black population, they reduced the number of polling sites from 22 to four. Then let's take Ohio. I'm talking about Ohio, I'm from Ohio. And you're like, you're in Pennsylvania, yeah, talk about Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> what Ohio, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> what Ohio did was, again, to look reasonable for its early voting. It said every, every county is going to get one early voting site. See how equitable we are? Except Cuyahoga County, where Cleveland is has 1.25 million people, as does Franklin County, and Hamilton County, Franklin's where Columbus is, and Hamilton County is Cincinnati, 800,000 people. Then there's Pickaway County with 60,000 people, and they each get one site. So that the lines in Cuyahoga, Franklin County, and Hamilton County are going for about a quarter of a mile and people are waiting for hours, four, five, six hours in line to vote. 
what the research shows is that there's a thing called line science. What the research shows is that waiting in line that long dissuades voters. And it not only dissuades voters, it dissuades people who are in their families and in their communities because they're telling the tale about standing in line for six hours trying to vote. And then there's Mike Pence's Indiana. Pence signed a law when he was governor. that counties that had over 325,000 residents would only get one early voting site. If you had fewer than 325,000 residents, you could get more. Now, if you're in one of those counties with 325,000 residents and you wanted to get more than one early voting site, you had to have a unanimous vote from your board of elections, which was a bipartisan board. And the Republican has consistently voted no. So Marion County, where Indianapolis is, has one site. Hamilton County, which is a suburb, has up to like three or four by now. The early voting percentages in Hamilton County have gone up by over 60%. In Indianapolis, it's gone down by 26%. The three counties in Indiana that have 325,000 people are where Indianapolis, Gary, and Fort Wayne are. That is where the majority of the black population in Indiana lives. This is how you can say we don't want black people to vote without saying we don't want black people to vote. And then there's purging. I'm from Georgia. Y'all heard about Brian Kemp? Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> going to talk about cross-check because this is the way you can also go after the Obama coalition. Cross-check is Chris Kobach's baby. Chris Kobach out of Kansas. And Kobach was the one who had been appointed by Donald Trump to help lead the Election Integrity Commission. You know I couldn't even look up at you when I said integrity and Kobach and Trump. What cross-check is supposed to do is to catch voters who are registered in multiple states and who are trying to go from state to state and vote and swing an election. And it does that, it says, by looking at first name, middle name, last name, suffix, last four of your social security and date of birth. That's not what it does. What it really does is it kind of sort of looks at the first name, some combination of like Joseph or Joe, Jay, and then your last name. Because minorities are, 80 have are in the top 85 of 100 most common last names in America. If your last name is Washington, there's a 89% chance that you're African American. 
your name is Hernandez, over a 90% chance that you're Hispanic. Your name is Lee, over a 90% chance that you're Asian. What has happened with Crosscheck? Crosscheck has knocked over a million people off of the voter rolls. It has knocked 14% of all black voters off of the voter rolls in the United States. And it does that by perseverating on that last name. So whites are underrepresented on the purge list by 8%. African Americans overrepresented by 45%. Hispanics overrepresented by 24%. Asians overrepresented by 31%. This is how you can knock folks off the rolls. Then there's felony disfranchisement. You know I'm going to go back down to Florida. So in the United States, over 6 million Americans cannot vote because of felony disfranchisement. They have a felony conviction, so the rules of their state say that they cannot vote. Over 6 million. 1.7 million of them are in Florida. 40% of adult black men in Florida cannot vote because of a felony conviction. 40% of adult black men. Over 20% of black adults in Florida cannot vote because of a felony conviction. Now, Florida is able to count their heads in the census in order to get the representatives in Congress off of those bodies. But those people do not have any say in their government. It is like the three-fifths rule. Then there's gerrymandering. And I know y'all don't know anything about that in Pennsylvania. <laughs> And gerrymandering, again, as you can see, each one of these devices is designed to demoralize. It's designed to cut folks out and to make people feel like their vote doesn't count. Gerrymandering particularly does that. I'm going to take Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, after the 2010 election, Republicans, a handful of Republicans sequestered themselves in a hotel room with a computer, some powerful mapping software, and with that kind of Cambridge analytic data about who people were, what their proclivities were, what the, how their political leanings were, and then they started drawing the maps. Now, what they wanted, the Republicans said two things. We want to get rid of as many competitive districts as possible because in competitive races, people will turn out to vote because you think your vote counts. But if the races aren't competitive, if you know who's going to be there, it's going to be there, and it doesn't matter if I vote or not because they're just going to be there. Removing competitive districts depresses the voter turnout rate. The second thing they said was that we want, no matter how many votes Republicans get, we will always have the majority of seats in the state legislature. That sounds like democracy. No matter... And so in that first election, and, and this thing was really tight. It took them 10 times to get the maps where they wanted them to be. 
and no Democrats were involved in the redistricting process, zero. And in fact, Republicans who wanted to see the maps could only see their district, but they had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Yes, this is American democracy in the 2010s. In that first election after this gerrymandered map, Democrats received 52% of the vote and 39% of the seats in the state legislature. 52% of the vote, 39% of the seats. And each subsequent election, it got worse. The Supreme Court did a pass on that one, saying that the people who had brought the lawsuit really, well, they weren't sure that they really had standing. And gerrymandering not only affects, let's be clear, not only affects that, that state, it affects the United States. What the gerrymandered maps have done is that they have created an additional 16 to 26 Republican seats in Congress. And it has created these kind of rotten boroughs where people do not, the re representatives do not have to be responsive to the will of the voters because the maps are drawn in such a way. So begin to understand that when we saw the Republicans trying to gut the Affordable Care Act, I mean with a vengeance, <coughs> meanwhile 70% of Americans saying they want the Affordable Care Act strengthened. How do you reconcile 70% of Americans want the act strengthened? But we've got Congress doing its best to destroy access to health insurance for millions of Americans. How does that make sense? Gerrymandering. Or how do you explain the fact that a tax bill went through? that transferred $1.5 trillion to the uber wealthy with no investment in education, no investment in healthcare, no investment in um, our infrastructure, no investment in our people. But $1.5 trillion moved out of the treasury. And up to 80% of Americans did not want that tax bill going through. How do you make that make sense? Gerrymandering. It is absolutely destructive to American democracy. We end up with a House of Representatives that is totally unrepresentative. All of this is to say is that when you have this happening in American democracy, when we see people treating the vote as something so sacred up here that only a few can have access to it, that all of these hurdles have to be jumped over and through. It's important to understand that voting is not a privilege. Voting is not an obstacle course. Voting is a right. Thank you. Thank you.
you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now we are on a time limit, uh, but we do want to transition into one of our favorite portions of events, and that is audience Q and A. Mm -hmm. So there's one of me. There's lots of you, <laughs> but uh, if you raise your hand, I will run around and uh, try to answer as many questions as possible. Can we go here? Or you seem to hit on it, but then you went to a different topic. What is your feelings on the voter suppression that's happening right now in Georgia, where 50,000 people are with new registers are not going to be allowed to vote unless something changes, and 31,000 of them are African-American, and by chance, we have an African-American woman running for right. governor, and how do we allow in America the person to be the Secretary of State <laughs> over voting and running for governor? Do you think he should have been had to step down, accuse himself mm -hmm. before this even came out, mm -hmm. um, because he's making decisions to make himself win. Yes. And it's Stacey Abram, and you can go to her website, folks, and try to help her to win because this is the biggest voter suppression recently that we have seen, and it's obvious, and nobody's doing much about it. I wrote an, uh, a piece in the New York Times in August called Brian Kemp, Enemy of Democracy, where I'm laying out because what had happened in the, um, there was a GOP runoff for the governorship. And he was running against a guy named Casey Cagle, who was the lieutenant governor. And they were trying to outdo each other in terms of how much they hated immigrants and how much they loved guns. And Cagle was running as the Trump conservative. Donald Trump came out and endorsed Brian Kemp. And I went, er? And I said, that doesn't, because Trump's not backing anybody that, because Kemp didn't endorse Trump in 2016. I said, this doesn't make any sense. Right, this doesn't make any sense. And then I went, oh, Kemp brings voter suppression to the table in a way that Casey Cagle does not. Kemp has been doing this for a long time. He's been Secretary of State since 2010. Under Kemp, there have been massive voter roll purges where the majority of people being purged are people of color. What the law says is that you cannot purge people simply because they do not vote. You purge people if they've moved out of the voting jurisdiction. You purge people if, if, they're, di if they're dead. Okay. <laughs> um, if they've changed their name and, and so stuff isn't matching up, those sorts of things, but simply because they do not vote. So what Kemp's office says is that we don't purge people. We don't even like that word purge. We maintain our voter rolls by people who have not had regular contact with election officials. Now, if you haven't changed your name, you're not contacting election officials. If you haven't moved out of the district, you're not contacting election officials. The only way you're not having contact with election officials is if you haven't voted regularly. Minorities and young people and poor people do not vote regularly. They vote sporadically. 
Democrat, and they usually vote Democratic, but and Democratic folks vote sporadically. So it is a way to wipe them off of the rolls. He has been doing this well before Stacey Abrams. Um, he had been doing this where he had already knocked over a million Georgians off of the rolls so that although the population of Georgia has gone up, the number of registered voters has gone down. He's been that effective. The other thing that he has done is to intimidate organizations that are registering Asian Americans and African Americans to vote. One of those organizations being the New Georgia Project, which had at that time had been headed up by Stacey Abrams. They got a long history. And Stacy's group had registered about 100,000 people, the majority of whom were African Americans. Kemp got on TV talking about, we can't have all of this voter fraud. So if you're registering black people, it must be voter fraud. And so he launched a very public investigation of the New Georgia Project and could find no voter fraud. There were no charges, nothing. Just a very public investigation and the kind of hint that something's, something's awry. So if you're looking at what he's saying now about the 53,000, he's like, oh, this is all the New Georgia Project and they were sloppy. You know, they're registering all these African Americans and they're sloppy. He went after a group so badly that had registered so um, Asian Americans, and they, so these were folks who had uh, received their American citizenship when they came out of the building with their American citizenship. Then this group said, mm, let's get you registered to vote, and was doing a great job with that. And they happened, and there were like 40,000. They happened to notice that many of these people were not on the voter registration list. So folks knew that they had registered to vote, you know, they, and so when they went to go vote, their names weren't there. And so they contacted this organization. And Brian Kemp, and so the organization then contacted Kemp's office going, yo, what happened? And they got no response. Well, early voting is going on, and early voting is constricted. You only got a few days to do this. And Brian Kemp's office is not responding. So they did a public thing where they said, hey, we, we registered all these people to vote, they're newly, you know, minted American citizens, and somehow their names aren't on the rolls, and we've asked Kemp's office, and we've heard nothing. Shortly thereafter, I mean like that, he launched a very public investigation against them. So you see the use of the kind of like criminal justice system as a form of intimidation. That's Brian Kemp. No charges. But that organization went out of business. In a little town in, and I'm sorry, but this is, you, you got me on, you, Kemp now. <laughs> a little town in um, southern Georgia had never, and it, the town is like 45% black, had never had any, an African American on the school board. We're in the 2010s. And after some teachers were fired for budgetary reasons, and black folks were like, the last folk you fire are teachers. 
there's some other stuff you could have done. And so they started doing a massive voter registration campaign, a get out the vote campaign, and several African Americans were elected to the school board. Kemp came in with the Georgia Highway Patrol, or the, uh, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and arrested the members of the school board, as well as the folks who were doing the voter registration, charged them with over a thousand counts of uh, charges of violation of voting laws, ran these folks through the courts, zero convictions. People lost their jobs. The, I, the thing is, is that Kemp has been able to do this, and I think it's because in many ways, when you think about it, voting laws and what's happening with the votes and everything, it's very bureaucratic, and Americans like, boom. You know, we, we're drawn to like, whoo, look at the fire. And this kind of bureaucratic stuff isn't about the fire, but it is a massive, serious burn. And so he's been able to really operate undercover, but this election is so high profile, and people have a sense that this election is basically do or die for America. We're, we're either going to go forward or we're going to go into the abyss. And so there's a heightened awareness now. And so when he pulled this last stunt, so re and remember, just before that, one of his allies had been a consultant to several election boards and had recommended, and these were election boards that had either major majority black populations in the counties or sizable, like 35, 40%. And he had recommended closing most of the voter polls. So like in Randolph County, that's over 60% black, he recommended closing seven of the nine. A and this is a wonderful story, though, about civic engagement. Because what happened was that that election board had posted a notice in the paper. And there was a retired government worker who's reading the paper, the way my daddy used to read the paper, from cover to cover, right? Just, and he starts reading the legal notices. Who reads the legal notices? <laughs> and he starts reading the legal notices, and he sees it. He's like, oh, I, I can read legalese. I've been in the government. They're trying to shut this stuff down. And he called the NAACP and the ACLU. And it was like a SWAT team coming in there. <laughs> and it blew up nationwide. Then Kemp said, oh, no, I, I, I don't think we ought to close seven of the nine, no. But he's already closed, after Shelby County v. Holder, he's already closed 214 polling places, most of them in minority and poor neighborhoods. And so for every tenth of a mile, that a polling place is moved from the black neighborhood, black voter turnout goes down 0.5%. So you can see what the closing of these polls, this is why those other counties were targeted, because he and Stacy are running neck and neck. And so if he can depress the black voter turnout, he's got a chance. 
That's the only way he's going to win. And that's what he's trying to do. And so it's not over. We don't know what other nefarious stuff he's got going on. Um, folks are aware, they're heightened, you know, they're looking, but he has been operating for so long in this way. Yeah. We've got a question in the second row. Professor Anderson, thank you so much for being here and for the incredibly vital work that you're doing. Um, my question has to do about um, has to do with the research process and maybe also the research risks of what you do. <laughs> um, you just referenced uh, the fact that so many of these events that you've traced are not necessarily fireworks, right? Could you talk a little bit about the process by which you have traced the sort of smoldering events that continue to build? Um, and also the intellectual and professional risks of doing so at this particular moment. I have never received that question. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so let me give you a bit of my background, because that, that will help. I, um, I used to work for the state of Ohio. I worked for the state of Ohio for 13 years in public policy. So I know how to read a memo. Um, and, I, and, and I'm fascinated by policy because policy shapes so much of our lives. And we often think of policy as just being that kind of mind-numbing, eye-glazing, boring stuff because it, it, it's written up that way. But I see the drama of our lives in these policies. Um, and so in my earlier works, um, the first book was called Eyes Off the Prize the United Nations and the African-American struggle for human rights. And I'm looking at how African-Americans saw in the 1940s that black equality was, was going to require not civil rights, but human rights. The, the vote, absolutely important. And we, but you also needed the right to health care, the right to education, the right. And so I'm tracing um, UN policy, State Department policy, White House policy through all of that. So I, I, I'm, I'm already in the research mode of knowing how to suss out policy. Who's making the decisions? How are those decisions being shaped? How are, they, how are the, the goals here, but how are they being thwarted over here? So I've, I've got that, that kind of history. By the time I got to one person, no vote, I'm a historian and, and so, so for so much of my work, it's way back in the, back then. And so I'm used to going through the archives and you kind of know how the story's gonna end, right? And, but you're, so you're getting, and so this is n new for me in a way because some of this stuff is happening right now. And so I don't have the, the luxury of being able to get fully behind the scenes and see all of the stuff you're able to see in the archives, like people's diaries. Ooh, love reading those diaries. <laughs> like people's diaries and, and the little notes they're sending back and forth to each other. Because unless we've got a FOIA thing right now where you can actually see what they're saying to each other, that's not gonna happen for another 30, 35 years when those papers have to become open, right? And so that's part of the kind of high wire risk is writing this, but, but then what it is is that, so I find myself then gathering 
gathering, gathering to, to, to keep checking, double checking. Is this thing going off the rails? Why is this going off the rails? Who would know this? And then hunting for the people who are involved in this to see what they're saying. And, and it's trying to, to triangulate sources as much as possible in some of this stuff, like I said, is just happening right now. So the, the last chapter in the book is on Alabama. And it is on the Doug Jones, Roy Moore, <laughs> right? I mean, so I'm almost writing this thing as it's happening. And that, for a historian, is a really scary place to be. <laughs> I'm like, okay, y'all need to hurry up and get this over and get some papers out here so I can see. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also an exciting place to be um, because then I'm using what I'm seeing coming off of incredible investigative journalists uh, from the interviews that I'm doing with activists on the ground, um, from the newspaper accounts, from um, what's being in, in the laws that are going through. And, and so it's all of that from social media. Oh, my gosh. So there was this moment. So I'm watching that election. And, and, and at first I'm like, because, <gasps> you know, you just see Roy Moore, Roy Moore, Roy Moore, Roy Moore. And I'm like, Lord, are, 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 we, are you kidding me here? And then, boom, Selma. And just when that hit, on the news, there's this tweet from Bernice King, who is Martin Luther King's daughter. And she tweeted, Selma, Lord Selma. <laughs> and I was like, yes! And so, of course, that's in the book. <laughs> so so some of the risks are in the now for a historian. That's also where the excitement is. And I've got to say, by being a historian, I'm able to put things in historical perspective. So I'm seeing the kinds of rhythms and rhymes. And so that's what allows me to see the, the Mississippi plan of 1890, how they were trying to get around the 15th Amendment by going after these you know, societally imposed characteristics, that when I'm looking at voter suppression laws now, so when you say, oh, well, all you need is an ID, but knowing that issues of race and poverty have a lot to do with what kinds of IDs you have, and so you craft the laws to be the kinds of IDs that people don't have, wow. And the only way North Carolina got caught was that they were really clear. They were like, yes, we're trying to figure out how black people vote so we can stop them from voting. <laughs> and, and, and the court went, okay, that sounds like a smoking gun. <laughs> and North Carolina went, dang, <laughs> right? But generally, it has been, and so that's what my historical perspective allows is me to see the now in a larger arc, and not just in this moment. Thank Got a you. question in the back? <coughs> uh, I also want to thank you for doing this. This was a, a great, really engaging and, and lively talk. Uh, I, I noticed that uh, uh, heroes that show up again and again in your story, in the stories you're telling here, mm -hmm. are the ACLU and the NAACP. Uh, so of course. I personally have tremendous admiration for you know the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and the ACLU. I think they're some of our greatest civic institutions, but most of us aren't lawyers, and uh, we are watching right now the Republican Party cement a conservative 
majority at all levels of the federal court. We just now we have a hyper conservative five justice majority on the Supreme Court. Mm. Who knows when uh, there will be anything like a Supreme Court that's willing to uphold like popular policies. Mm. Kind of the function of it is to suppress progressive policies, yes no matter is. how popular yes they are. Is. So my question is, what can the those of us who are not ACLU or NAACP litigators, what can we do to fight this long term? trend of voter suppression and, and white supremacy in the United States. Mm. Yeah. And um, that again is why I have the Alabama chapter that's called the resistance. Because Alabama had deployed every method of voter suppression that I've talked about here against this black population. I mean every last one of them. And when Roy Moore emerged, civil society said, not today, Satan, not today. <laughs> and it was watching what they did and how they did it. Because what this, again, remember that what this kind of oppressive system is designed to do is to demoralize you. It is to make you give up and accept your subjugation. When folks refused to, when Fannie Lou Hamer said, when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. So let's talk about Alabama. Alabama, for instance, had, you asked what you can do when you're not a lawyer. Alabama had a moral turpitude clause written into its Jim Crow Constitution in 1901. It said, if you have been convicted of a crime of moral turpitude, you have lost your voting rights. I love that look on your face because that's it right there. That was a, what you talking about, Willie? <laughs> because, and then Alabama refused to define moral turpitude. So folks didn't know if they had been convicted of a crime of moral turpitude, but what they knew is if they tried to vote and that crime was moral turpitude, they were going to get hit with a felony. And after you have done time in an Alabama prison, you don't want to go back. And so by 2017, remember, this is in 1901, it took lots of pounding in the courts. By 2017, Alabama finally defined moral turpitude. By that time, 8% of the adult population in Alabama was disfranchised because of a moral turpitude, and 15% of the black population. And so with that, then, the ACLU and the NAACP turned to Secretary of State John Merrill and said, fine, all of those folks that you told that they couldn't vote because of moral turpitude, now tell them they got their voting rights back. And he said, I don't think that's a good use of state resources. And they said, not today, Satan. And they started setting up restoration clinics. And what they did was they started sending out this mass publicity campaign, both, both on social media and in the radio, on the radio, because you're dealing with demographics. There's some folks who don't know social media, and there's some folks who don't listen to the radio. So by hitting the, those different demographics, they started getting lots of folks coming in, and the, the, the ads basically said, you know what? You've been, you've been told that you don't have the right to vote because of moral turpitude. Well, guess what? You probably actually do have your rights. There's a new law. 
come to our restoration clinic. So they set it up with the black churches, the first one being in Selma. And they had a team of lawyers and a team of volunteers. The team of lawyers went through their records going, nope, not moral turpitude, not moral turpitude, not moral turpitude. Then the team of volunteers then said, okay, great. Now, this is what you need to be able to vote in Alabama. And they started getting folks registered to vote. They also realized there were some people who weren't going to step foot in a church. Shocking. They set up caravans that would just drive all over Alabama into the poor neighborhoods. But they would pepper that area first with a publicity campaign. We've got a restoration clinic coming your way. You're getting ready to get your voting rights back. They registered thousands of people via this. And then there was a group called the Ordinary People's Society because Alabama had a law that said, if you are in jail, you can vote absentee as long as you're not convicted of a crime of moral turpitude. So folks weren't voting in jail, right? They're like, I'm not doing Ordinary People Society went into the jails and started going through people's records, not moral turpitude, not moral turpitude, not moral turpitude, and then getting people registered to vote with their absentee ballots. And part of what they were doing is that they had managed to get Alabama to agree because some folks had been incarcerated for a while. And so if they had a driver's license, it had expired. They had done the kind of grassroots lobbying work that got Alabama to agree that your mugshot was a government-issued photo ID. So when you're asking, what can we do? We, we keep fighting. We play to our strength. There, there are folks who are really good organizers. There are folks who are really good writers. There are folks who are really good about parsing through the mess. There are folks who can sit through these kind of mind-numbing government meetings and know exactly what's going on and be able to interpret it for their community. Everybody doing what they can do. Because again, what this oppressive system is supposed to do is to get us to just give up. Mm-mm. 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 I know that's right. <laughs> we are running out of time, but uh, we have time for just one more question right here. Uh, thank you. I feel like you started to answer my question, but I'm going to keep going anyways. Why the heck not? Anyways. <laughs> So one of the interesting things about this summer was the revival of the Poor People's Campaign. And I'm going to keep – Reverend Barber, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was something that I was really uh, able to attend this summer because I had off on Moral Monday. So I was able to go to these things. But then it was also like one of my frustrations was that in Pennsylvania, it was like for our Poor People's Campaign um, – for some of them, we had more people of color than others. And then it was a lot of um, white liberal population because they were the only ones that could make it out to that to that time. Mm -hmm. So I was like, if this is the poor people's campaign, um, then why 
how is it that we can actually get the poor people to participate in this thing? How do we take these talks from being in, mm -hmm. this is a great venue, but how do we get these talks from being from here to actually getting the morale to the people like in, up in the hill, like which is, which mm -hmm. is our place in, in, in Harrisburg, mm -hmm. which is my deep frustration mm -hmm. is that this information doesn't need to just stay here. We can't depend on white liberals to redeem us from our own thing. So how do we actually bring and give energy? Because it's gonna take like, just wild dreaming and committing to that. So how do we centralize and, and inspire, I guess? I love it, wild dreaming, yes. <laughs> so I'm gonna take us back to Alabama. <laughs> uh, and, and again, that's why, you know, because so much of this book deals with the ways that these voter suppression techniques work. But Al Alabama shows us how to fight. And so I start that chapter in Alabama with the depth of poverty in Alabama, in those black belt counties that Alabama's beaten up on. In some counties, 40% of the county lives below the poverty level, 40%. In all of the black belt counties, at least 25% of the people are below the poverty level. The UN went into the black belt and was horrified to see that depth of poverty in the United States of America where because there aren't viable septic systems or sewage systems, there are just fecal lakes behind people's homes. And so E. coli and hookworm are running rampant in the black belt. We're talking poverty, right? Those folks. So what happened is, is that people didn't stay in their enclaves. They went where the people were. They also understood that voting is a social thing. It's not this isolated thing, but it is a social thing. So like the NAACP of Alabama. <laughs> oh, that was like NAACP of old. I mean, they weren't playing. <sighs> they got first, they got the list of folks who hadn't voted, who hadn't voted regularly. They started calling them, then they started knocking on doors, go, just going to people's homes, and they didn't go in there with that kind of, nah, 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 why aren't you voting? It was like, what's up, with, what's going on? What's important to you? What's happening in your life? And it was that one-on-one, -on -one, and then talking in groups, sitting at the cafe, the local coffee shop, the local cafe, the local place where poor folk were hanging out. What's up? And just listening to people talk. And then saying, yeah. And you know what Roy Moore's got planned? Mm. You know we can stop him. Because you know if he gets in there, you know what he's going to do. And so it is, it is going where the people are. It is like the caravan. They knew folks weren't going to step up in the church. So they went to where people lived and just started talking. That's how you do it. It is, it is hard, it is long. You cannot do it in the October before the election. They were doing that grassroots work almost immediately after 2016, the November 2016 election. You know, and, and vote riders, for instance, Vote riders said, we're not even going to argue about the ID thing. What we know is that we got a lot of poor folk 
in Alabama who weren't born in hospitals and don't have an ID, a birth certificate. They got in there in about January, going to where the people are and working with the organizations that are already legitimate in those communities. So not trying to go up in there as savior, because that's not going to work, but going in there as ally and said, we want you to have the power. You already have it. They're trying to block you from it. We're going to work with you to get you the thing you need so you could exercise that incredible power that you have. And they started working on getting folks the documentation they needed in order to get the birth certificate, in order to get the ID in January so that folks were ready by December. Yeah. So it is, and let me be also be clear, none of this was cheap. Millions were pouring into Alabama. But what those outside funders understood, working with the local grassroots organizations, was that the local folks know the local folk. You know, as what do they say, the South will eat strategy for breakfast. <laughs> the local folk know the local folk. And so those outside funders trusted the local people to be able to effectively use those millions of dollars in order to stop a bigot and an alleged serial pedophile from becoming a U.S. senator. And it worked. It worked because they knew who to talk to. They knew who to avoid. They knew who the fakers were and who the shakers were. They knew. Coming from the outside, you don't know that. And that mobilized people. In the Black Belt counties, the overall voter turnout in Alabama, um, Secretary of State John Merrill thought it'd be 25% in that election. Yeah, made my head snap up too. <laughs> 25%. It was 40%. In the Black Belt counties, it was 45.4%. So the people who had been suppressed the most came out five percentage points higher than the state average in terms of voter turnout. That is what that incredible grassroots ground game did. And again, the black belt counties have at least a 25% poverty rate. Cool? Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Taylor Anderson. Thank you, everyone, for joining thank us you, uh, for this keynote speak speaker. Um, thank you for joining us for the sixth annual Harrisburg Book Festival. I hope everyone had a great time. Um, can we just give another round of applause for Taylor Anderson? Yeah.